It only took us uh, five episodes to get to reptilians. I know. Now we're at reptilians. (laughs) (laughs) Podcasting from an underground studio flying under the radar, this is Dan. By day, I'm a professor of cognitive neuroscience, and by night, I retreat into my subterranean lair and dig deep into the thoughts of mankind. Dad, I'm so excited to listen to this episode. And I'm Dave, sitting firmly atop the Great Canadian Shield in Northern Ontario. I'm a pastor by profession, and a part of that includes unmasking the messaging that comes at us each and every day. We will not conform. You're listening to Episode 5 of the Not Conform Podcast. So we made it to episode five. I can't believe it, Dave. We did. We made it to episode five. Now, in the last four episodes, we've been focusing on propaganda and the control of public opinion and the control of the worldviews of the people of the West. But today we're going to pivot to what might seem to be a completely different topic, and that's the re-emerging interest in psychedelic drugs in the West. Oh, yeah, the psychedelics. Actually, Dave, it might not be that much of a pivot, as we'll see later in the episode. That's right. And and we're not done with propaganda. Don't worry about that. We're going to come back to that. I'm uh, currently reading a book about the uh, national security cinema, which is the shocking new evidence of government control in Hollywood. So so we're going to come back to this and we're going to come back to propaganda and education and all those things. But right now we're going to we're going to switch to uh, psychedelics. And it might not be obvious because if your idea of psychedelics is just uh, stoners dropping acid from the 60s, then, um, <laughs> you know, you don't you don't see how this fits in. But Dan, uh, talk about how, how do psychedelic drugs, what do they have to do with our focus on worldviews? Well, I think there are several reasons why we want to spend some time considering the psychedelic experience. And the first is that some people report that their psychedelic experiences can radically change their worldview in a lasting way. And that sometimes they actually gain information from their psychedelic experiences. And second it turns out that the experience can drive some people towards certain types of traditional religions, and uh, we'll talk a little bit about those. And third, there are also those who claim that some major religions might have been inspired by ancestral use of hallucinogenic drugs, and uh, we'll cover some of that also. But uh, I, I should add here that right now, I think this is becoming more and more important because we're seeing a resurgence in the use of psychedelic drugs in the West. Yeah, Dan, a good example of this renewed interest in psychedelic drugs is the book by the well-known scientific writer Michael Pollan. And it's titled How to Change Your Mind. And I think the subtitle of the book says it all, what the new science of psychedelics teaches us about consciousness, dying, addiction, depression, and transcendence. And in this book, Pollan basically extols the benefits of the use of psychedelics to expand your mind and to gain insight into your life. And this book has been featured heavily by many media outlets. Dave, I have a clip here from ITV News in which Pollen describes a renewed interest in psychedelic drugs. Michael Pollen, author of How to Change Your Mind, A New Science of Psychedelics. Um, Does this mean... Are you arguing psychedelics are about to shrug off their sort of hippie, tie-dye reputation of the past and enter a new era? I think we're in the process of that happening. Uh, I think for most of us, psychedelics are, uh, our image of them was set and frozen in the 60s uh, when they were a drug of the counterculture uh, and associated with um, 
you know, Timothy Leary and Ken Kesey and, and uh, uh, the war on drugs, ultimately, a moral panic that engulfed these drugs and a lot of scare stories. But before that, and, and I didn't realize this and most people I don't think realize it, there was a period of more than a decade of very productive research using psychedelics, LSD and psilocybin, which is the ingredient in magic mushrooms, to treat alcoholism, depression, anxiety, obsession, to understand schizophrenia. Um, and they were regarded as potential psychiatric wonder drugs in that period. And then the 60s comes along. We have this powerful reaction against them in the society. They're made illegal. They weren't made illegal till the late 60s, uh, 1970 for most countries. Mm. Um, and then they got kind of frozen in time. The research stops. Um, and we uh, did this, this amazing thing in, in the history of science, which we had a 30-year interregnum where nobody could study these drugs and uh, imagine what we could have learned. Um, but now, I mean, is, to go back to your question, they are shaking off that image because this research that was done in the 50s is being rediscovered. We are reprising a lot of those studies to see how they hold up because they weren't done to modern standards. Um, and what we're finding is that there may be a very valuable resource here that we've overlooked. Yeah, so, Paul, and this is an interesting interview. I haven't heard this one, but I heard the one where he was on Joe Rogan. Right. And uh, that's that's one of the largest podcasts out there. Rogan is kind of like the new, uh, I don't know, uh, you know, he, he's... Uh, he, he's uh, uh, like replacing the the late night talk show guys, right? Yeah, and and uh, he himself is a psychedelic user and an evangelist for the use of psychedelics. And I'll tell you, after I listened to that Rogan uh, Michael Pollan interview, I was starting to look on Amazon Prime or thinking about looking on Amazon Prime, uh, and it wasn't for the book. So <laughs> so it's very persuasive, very persuasive. No? Yeah, and you know we're seeing uh, now Professor Jordan Peterson uh, at mm -hmm. the University of. Toronto, who's become somewhat of a celebrity, I guess he's famous or infamous, depending on your perspective, but he advocates the use of psychedelics in therapy. Here's uh, Jordan Peterson. With one mystical experience on psilocybin, produces 85% cessation rate in smoking. Yeah, it's completely, and with uh, MDMA, ecstasy, mm -hmm. the three treatments with MDMA, that's what the current research indicates, produces a 72% cure rate for intractable post-traumatic stress disorder. It's like, those are miracle cures, and no one, and they have to be accompanied by the mystical experience. No one knows how to account for that. Miracle cures, Dave. Psychedelic <laughs> drugs as miracle cures. Yeah, you gotta wonder, in his book, uh, The Twelve Rules for Life there, Peterson's got, he talks about all these dreams he has, and he bases a lot of his dreams. You gotta wonder. Oh, where do these <laughs> dreams come from? But hey, yeah. Dave, our yeah. listeners might actually recognize all of this as Propaganda, psychedelic propaganda, Dave. It's on Joe Rogan, <laughs> Jordan Peterson. You know, everybody's trying to get people involved in psychedelic drugs right now. That's right. And watch the articles as they pop up. They, they, they keep popping up with quite a regularity now in the news in terms of, oh, this new new thing from frogs got isolated, psychedelic that does this or whatever. They'll be, it's gonna, they're going to get titrated out over time now promoting this. Now, before we get too far, though, down the road, what what, psych what drugs are we talking about, uh, Dan? What, what kind of psychedelics are we... What do we mean by this? Yeah, so there's a class of drugs called the classic hallucinogens, and these include drugs uh, such as the following. The first would be lysergic acid diphylamide, 
also known as LSD, and this was the very popular drug in the 60s, right? And the street name, uh, sometimes it's known as just acid. And this is a drug that was created in the laboratory of a Swiss pharmaceutical company by a chemist named Albert Hoffmann in 1938. And it turns out that he had created this, but then the psychedelic properties weren't really realized or, or nobody knew about them until 1943. And the drug was derived from a compound found in ergot, which is a fungus that grows on certain crops, such as rye. Mm. So that's one example. Then we have uh, a drug called psilocybin, which is also uh, known as magic mushrooms, or it's the main ingredient in certain mushrooms that have psychedelic properties. Psilocybin has uh, been extracted from these mushrooms or is sometimes consumed by just consuming the mushrooms that can be found in parts of Central America and, and parts of Mexico. So that's the second one, psilocybin. The third one would be a drug called mescaline, and this is the psychoactive ingredient present in certain cacti, such as the peyote cactus. And it was heavily used in various ceremonies in certain places in Mexico, Central America, and South America. And I guess uh, the fourth one would be a chemical known as dimethyltryptamine, or DMT. And this is a chemical that's found in many plants, and it's actually in our bodies as well. But it can be isolated from plants and then smoked or injected directly into the bloodstream. It's also an ingredient in an Amazonian brew called ayahuasca. And it was and is heavily used in shamanic rituals. Uh, in the, well, it was used in the past and still used to d- this still day. Still today, yeah. Yeah, I was reading an article where... Um I was actually listening to a podcast where they talked about that it was under Trudeau that this church, ayahuasca church, was able to finally import their sacrament legally into Canada, which is basically taking this ayahuasca. Ah, yes. I've I've, I've read about these uh, psychedelic, quote-unquote, churches with their psychedelic, quote-unquote, sacraments. Uh, we have to talk more about this uh, in later episodes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's very intriguing. But anyways, to those main four ones, so LSD, psilocybin, mescaline, and DMT, we can also, which are called the classic hallucinogens, we might also add uh, some others, such as the mushroom Amanita muscaria. And this is that classic red mushroom with white dots that seems to appear all over the place. Yeah, like children's books everywhere. <laughs> yeah, or and some video games. I think Super Mario, I've heard, had this particular mushroom in it. Uh, and then I guess we can also add the Mexican plant Salvia divinorum, which is also known as a sage of the diviners. But there are actually many other kinds of mushrooms and plants that have been used as psychedelics. So what about this term psychedelics? What, what does that refer to? Yeah, so there, that generally refers to the notion of consciousness expanding or mind manifesting. So sometimes they use the word hallucinogens, sometimes they use the word psychedelics, and there are some other terms as well that we'll encounter a bit later on. So when people take this stuff, what do they experience when they take these things? Well, maybe the best way to describe this is by looking at some people's reports of their first-hand experiences. Uh, And Dave, perhaps as we talk about these, you can maybe analyze some of it from a Christian worldview uh, if the chance comes up. Yeah, definitely. I mean, let's let's make sure we outline the landscape and then uh, seeing how much time we have, even if we have to spill into the next episode, we can, we can definitely do that. Okay. Okay, so w- one report that we can start with is that of Albert Hoffman, who is the chemist who first synthesized LSD. And in his book titled LSD, My Problem Child, which is a kind of a cool name, 
Hoffman writes the following about his first experimental LSD trip. And, you know, back in those days, the scientists would actually experiment on themselves sometimes, and that's exactly what he did. And what I'm going to quote is actually near the end of his first psychedelic trip, his first planned psychedelic trip. Quote, Now, little by little, I could begin to enjoy the unprecedented colors and plays of shapes that persisted behind my closed eyes. Kaleidoscopic, fantastic images burst in upon me, alternating, variegated, opening and then closing themselves in circles and spirals, exploding in colored fountains, rearranging and hybridizing themselves in constant flux. It was particularly remarkable how every acoustic perception, such as the sound of a doorknob or of a passing automobile, became transformed into optical perceptions. Every sound generated a vividly changing image with its own particular form and color, end quote. So there are these various distortions of perception that Hoffman talks about, uh, and they involve the five senses, and they also involve some crosstalk between the senses, so that, for example, auditory stimulation can elicit visual experiences, and this is generally known as synesthesia. These are the kinds of experiences, I think, that often come to mind when people think about psychedelic experiences. But there's a lot more to the experiences than just some changes in visual and auditory perceptions. And here's a description by Michael Pollan, the author that we talked about a moment ago of the book, How to Change Your Mind. This is his description of one of his experiences under the influence of psilocybin. So after experiencing various changes in perception, he writes the following, quote, Now I watched as that familiar self began to fall apart before my eyes, gradually at first and then all at once. And then later on he says, quote, Where the self had always been a subject encapsulated in this body, this one seemed unbounded by anybody, even though I now had access to its perspective. And later he adds, quote, The personal had been obliterated. Everything I once was and called me, this self, six decades in the making, had been liquefied and dispersed over the scene, end quote. And he actually talks about it being like paint that was being painted on a canvas. And then he goes on, quote, The sovereign ego, with all its armaments and fears, its backward-looking resentments and forward-looking worries, was simply no more, and there was no one left to mourn its passing. Yet something had succeeded it, this bare, disembodied awareness which gazed upon the scene of the self's dissolution with benign indifference, end quote. And then, finally, he says, And although there was no self to feel exactly, there was a feeling tone which was calm, unburdened, content. There was life after the death of the ego. This was big news, he says. Uh, you know, he later says that that experience might be called by others the cosmic consciousness or the oversoul or, or the universal mind. And what Paul is describing here is something that's sometimes referred to as the dissolution of the ego or depersonalization, where it feels like the self no longer exists. Dave, I have here a clip from... Uh, a conversation that Joe Rogan has with Michael Pollan. So Joe Rogan, the well-known podcaster, here's what he says about this notion of the dissolution of the ego. 
maybe really truly realize that we are in a soup of of atoms and that it's not yeah, there's not like Michael Pollan, Joe Rogan and Jamie Vernon in a room here's a wood table there's oxygen yeah, between right. us no this the, we're in a, a an universal stew yeah, of, of particles yeah <laughs> and it breaks those particles down or at least it gives you a view into that and you cease to exist which is the most bizarre thing you cease to exist that's what he's saying yeah, and th- this goes back to uh, what we started with earlier, this idea that the psychedelic experience can radically change your worldview in a lasting way. And uh, when you listen to Rogan, he will, this is this is the worldview that he he uh, puts out there on several different times. I've, I've, I've listened to him on psychedelics a few t- on a several different podcasts, and mm-hmm. he keeps kind of coming back to this worldview. Yeah, we should make it clear that the ego, that this ego dissolution is different from just being less self-focused or less self-centered or less egotistical or maybe less narcissistic. All those things might be Christian virtues, right? What they're actually talking about is that the person becomes non-distinct from everything, and in the extreme they would say even the divine. So, so they become part of the divine. That's right, and we'll get to that um, with a few other examples. And as people listen to this, listen to the reoccurring themes like this idea of the dissolution of the ego or this becoming part of the divine or the the, the, the self ceases to exist, all, all these kinds of things. Uh, keep a catalog of this because we're going to come back to these these themes a little bit later. Yeah, so here's another description of, of a similar type of experience, a psychedelic experience, this time from... Aldous Huxley, who we introduced in the last episode, uh, Dave, you might remember him as the author, the famous author, and also as the brother of Julian Huxley, who played an important role in the United Nations, as we mentioned before. Now, Huxley wrote a well-known book about his experience on mescaline, and the book's titled The Doors of Perception. I think there's another companion book called Heaven and Hell, and you can buy them together now. But here's what Huxley says. I'm reading from page 52 here, quote, In my present state, awareness was not referred to as ego. It was, so to speak, on its own. This meant that the physiological intelligence controlling the body was also on its own. For the moment, that interfering neurotic who in waking hours tries to run the show was blessedly out of the way. And then later on, he says, quote, The fear, as I analyzed it in retrospect, was of being overwhelmed, of disintegrating under a pressure of reality greater than a mind, accustomed to living most of the time in a cozy world of symbols, could possibly bear. So again here we have got this idea of the dissolution of the ego, right? He says awareness was not referred to as ego, mm-hmm. together with this notion of giving up control, a loss of control. So now his, his physiology is running the show, right? And the ego, which is normally supposed to be in control— is no longer in control. Yeah. Now, one of the things, Dave, that uh, themes that also comes up is this notion as people go through this of initially maybe trying to fight this uh, change or this dissolution, but then ultimately deciding to surrender to it. Here is uh, another clip from this Paulin interview uh, where he talks about this notion of surrendering. So, for example, if you feel you're going crazy or dying or your ego is dissolving, go with it. Don't fight it. If you fight it, you'll get very anxious. Uh, if you see a staircase, go up it. If you see a window, open it. Um, and um, so just 
through, go through it, go through the experience. Surrender, very key word. Wow. So there are some other aspects of Huxley's experience that maybe are worth highlighting. He writes the following in some other parts of his book, quote, I was seeing what Adam had seen on the morning of his creation, the miracle moment by moment of naked existence. How would he know what Adam felt like? <laughs> or what yeah, exactly. Saw? Like he was there, right? Exactly. Uh, he, the word he uses is isness. That's how he described mm. that state of being of this naked existence. And uh, later on, he was he's describing how he's looking at some flowers and experiencing the following, quote, What rose and iris and carnation so intensely signified was nothing more and nothing less than what they were a transience that was yet eternal life, a perpetual perishing that was at the same time pure being, a bundle of minute, unique particulars in which, by some unspeakable and yet self-evident paradox, was to be seen the divine source of all existence. And uh, he also later says, quote, everything shone with inner light and was infinite in its significance, end quote. This is interesting, Dan. Uh, these descriptions that we just heard of these psychedelic states suggest that uh, under the influence of the drug, people are essentially having what we could call mystical experiences. Yeah. Yeah, and so I want to turn to the work of Dr. Rick Strassman, and he describes and he summarizes very nicely the characteristics of this mystical state. And Strassman's is important because he was one of the first, he was the first to conduct publicly funded research on the experiences that were triggered by DMT. Um, and he's going to come up a few times in this episode. So what he did was he injected volunteers with DMT, and then he recorded their ph- physiological responses um, and also the reports of their subjective experiences. And in his book, he he identifies uh, a number of characteristics of this mystical experience. And so I want to read to you a series of quotes. Okay. Uh, I'm just going to plow through them that uh, describe what what uh, he would identify as this mystical state. So, number one, uh, there no longer is any separation between the self and what is not the self. There's no personal identity. So this is the depersonalization or ego dissolution we talked about before. Exactly. Uh, also, time stops in as much as time no longer passes. Space becomes vast. And we hold up to examination all contradictions and paradoxes and see that they no longer conflict. Mm-hmm. Number five, uh, we can hold, absorb, and accept everything our mind conjures up, good and evil, suffering and happiness, small and large. That's interesting that he says accept everything. So it's not just holding things in your mind, it's accepting everything, including evil. And the paradoxes, right? And the mm-hmm. contradictions. Yeah. So we'll have to come back to that when we go to critique this uh, this thing. Mm-hmm. Um, number six, uh, ex- extraordinarily powerful feelings surge through our consciousness. Hey, see the emotions. Uh, is, is very powerful emotions involved in, in these mystical experiences. Exactly. Uh, there is a searing sense of the sacred and the holy. And so there and we have the divine. Yep, and he says we call it enlightenment because we encounter the white light of creation's majesty. Uh, they they see things in a new light, he writes. And because the person is depersonalized and part of all things, they fuse with this divine light. So they, they fuse with the divine. 
So they almost like become God. They're part of God in that sense. That's the way he describes a mystical state, yes. Mm -hmm. Um, So these are the general characteristics of the mystical experience. And it seems that what happens uh, when you, when a person uses psychedelic drugs is they can get, they can get themselves into these states. That's right. Yeah. And, And he would say that you can get into these states in other ways, other than the drugs. And uh, that's what some of these meditation practices would be for. And so he would say, you know, if you, uh, you know, go on certain kinds of, of fasting or certain kinds of diets, and then you do certain kind of breathing and meditation, you can actually get your body into these various states. And it might actually have something to do with the DMT because it turns out we have enzymes to generate DMT even in the lungs. It's awesome, Dan. Instant enlightenment for the instant generation. That's <laughs> great. That's right. You don't have and to actually, fast for 40 days. You don't have to meditate for 40 years, practice meditating. You can just pop a substance. Well, yes, Strassman actually was interested <laughs> in this because, you see, he, he was doing a lot of—he went into Zen Buddhism for a long time. Yeah. He's actually Jewish, but then—he grew up Jewish, but then left Judaism and went to Zen Buddhism— and his idea was, hey, maybe if we take these drugs, we could just get there faster, <laughs> right? So that's one of the motivations behind uh, a lot of his research. Just getting back to the the uh, what we're talking about here, uh, the the whole one of the big points is here that this is uh, this whole thing seems very authoritative, mm-hmm. uh, and the experience is is authoritative. And so, why don't you play that clip from Michael Pollan with the interview uh, about um, with, with the William James thing? Uh, William James, when he was writing about the mystical experience, which this is by his... By the way, William James is known as the father of psychology in America. ...criteria, uh, said that one of its uh, hallmarks is uh, the noetic quality of the experience, by which he meant um, what happened is objectively true. It's not just an opinion. It's not an insight. It's a revealed truth. And that authority is, I think, what allows people to actually change their behavior or their thinking after this. Yeah, so it feels very authoritative, like they've been given a personal revelation. And because these psychedelic drugs can bring about this very authoritative mystical experience, this contact maybe with the divine, they're sometimes called entheogens. So that's another word for these, and which means generating the divine from within. Yeah, interesting. It's interesting how the definitions are almost descriptive of the worldview that comes with these, uh, the use of these uh, hallucinogens, which yeah. actually is the one word that is maybe not so positive, right? Exactly. And in um, fact, you see people choosing the word that seems to match their particular worldview when they, when they go to describe these various uh, chemicals. Yeah. So, so just speaking of worldviews, then why don't we move on into how how these psychedelic drugs can lead people towards certain religions, and especially uh, we're talking about now Buddhism and Hinduism. How those worldviews are are fostered by the experiences that they have on these things. Yeah. So exactly. So it turns out that having these mystical experiences with these drugs then drives people towards these particular religions. Here is a quote from Strassman, quote, Countless Western men and women have begun Buddhist practices after first using psychedelic drugs. Both psychedelic drugs and meditation elicit states of consciousness that point toward an enlightened state of mind, one in which time, space, and personal identity do not exist. Opposites reconcile seamlessly 
and death no longer holds any sting. End quote. Interesting. And then he goes on to say, after learning transcendental meditation and visiting a number of Hindu and Buddhist centers in the United States, so this is Strassman speaking, I began Buddhist practice within a Zen order in my early 20s. I quickly found confirmation within the religious community of my ideas about the relationship between Buddhism and psychedelics. Among the dozens of its young members, nearly everyone had his or her first intimation of enlightenment during a psychedelic drug experience, usually with LSD. These monks and lay people then found in Zen a model for living a spiritual life that was consistent with the insights they had obtained from their psychedelic drug experience. End quote. So LSD <laughs> brought Western people to Buddhism, Dave. <laughs> yeah, that's nice. Oh, hey, don't, you know you have a, don't you have a Strassman clip on that one? I, I think I do. Here it <laughs> yeah, is. Go ahead, play it. Yeah. If it weren't for psychedelics, I don't think there'd be any Western Buddhism. Uh, <laughs> you know, all of the monks at that monastery in their early 20s tripped on acid. They got a totally different view of things, and they said, hmm, I wonder if there's some you know, way to apply the insights I glimpsed to integrate the experience to make it more part of my life. And, you know, for them, you know, they chose the Zen approach. <laughs> there would be no Western Buddhism without the drugs. Actually, Dave, Westerners at the end of the, can't handle the discipline. <laughs> yeah, that's right. At the end of the book, though, he talks about how uh, the, uh, the, the community, the Zen Buddhist community that he was with ended up kind of pushing him out because they disavowed uh -huh. the drug and they found out he was, <laughs> okay. he was promoting all this drug use. <laughs> they just kind of tried to <laughs> dissociate themselves from poor old Strassman. And then yeah. at what he's like kind of flung out of the community, he starts to reevaluate things. And it turns out he ends up going back uh, to Judaism, which it's a, it's a really interesting story anyways. Yeah. And it's the second book, which is, uh, the um, DMT and the Soul of Prophecy, right? Mm-hmm. Or he yep. values things out. Yeah, now there's this thesis out there that uh, people believe that ancient religions are basically inspired by psychedelic experiences. Oh, yeah. Um, do you want to get into that a little bit? Yeah, so enter this character, this intriguing character named Gordon Wasson. Uh, Gordon Wasson worked with none other than, uh, listen to this, Dave, J.P. Morgan, the major New York banker. And remember, if there's a mm. guy, if there's ever a guy who was a member of the controlling elite, and <laughs> this, the, is like, the guy. this is the guy, that's this right. This is the love your servitude guy, right? <laughs> this would be the guy who would want us to love our servitude, exactly. Anyways, Wasson actually became the vice president of J.P. Morgan and Company. Uh, and this was, this all unfolded in the 1930s. And, well, as history has it, at some point, Wasson becomes fascinated with mushrooms, and he goes to Mexico to investigate the potent psychedelic plants rumored to be there. And, Dave, just to make this sound even more like fiction, the CIA was involved in one of these expeditions as part of their MK Ultra mind control program. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, and that's a real thing, by the way, and even— uh, Michael Pollan writes about this in his book. Uh, oh, definitely. About I mean, you can you can look up uh, Trudeau didn't want to apologize for because a whole bunch of the research was done in Canada in a Quebec clinic on Canadians. Oh my goodness, this MK Ultra program. <laughs> you know, and so yeah. we're, here we're we're back to propaganda <laughs> and all this other stuff that we talked about before. So see, we didn't really pivot with this topic. <laughs> Not really. <laughs> it's, connected. it's connected. It's connected. Anyways, in his book titled Soma: Divine Mushroom of Immortality. Wasson makes the case that psychedelic drugs derived from plants were instrumental in the formation of the Vedic worldview 
and the resulting religious views. As a way of background here, the Vedic culture emerged about, uh, I think it was about 1500 BC and lasted about a thousand years. So this is ancient history. Mm-hmm. And it was uh, in the territory now occupied by India, Pakistan, and some of the surrounding countries. And modern religions like Hinduism and practices like yoga would trace their roots back to this Vedic culture. The language was Sanskrit, and it turns out there are some writings that have survived from that time. And one of these is a series of poems that are collectively referred to as the Rig Veda. And I think I pronounced that correctly. Mm-hmm. And they speak of the various gods that the Vedic people worshipped. Now, Wasson writes about uh, these gods, and he writes the following about one particular god. Quote, unique among these other gods was Soma. Soma was at the same time a god, a plant, and the juice of a plant. And later he writes, In the hierarchy of Vedic gods, certain others took precedence over Soma, but since Soma was a tangible, visible thing, its inebriating juice to be ingested by the human organism in the course of the ritual, a god come down and manifesting himself to the Aryans, Soma played a singular role in the Vedic pantheon. And then later he says, now he's stating his thesis, in a word, my belief is that Soma is the divine mushroom of immortality, and that in the early days of our culture, before we made use of reading and writing, when the Rig Veda was being composed, the prestige of this miraculous mushroom ran by word of mouth far and wide throughout Eurasia, well beyond the regions where it grew and was worshipped. He says, my candidate for the identity of Soma is Amanita muscaria, the psychedelic mushroom. mushroom. That's right. So according to this elite banker, Gordon Wasson, Mm -hmm. the early religions in and around modern India were influenced by psychedelics and by a psychedelic drug trip, Dave. Oh, wow. Okay, but it doesn't end there. Not only were the Vedic people into all this, the Greeks were into this also. And, you know, the ancient Greeks had a psychedelic that they used, we think, called a, they called it the Kikion, K-Y-K-E-O-N. And they had an annual uh, ritual ceremony, and it was the only time in the year where you could use this drug. And it was a, a ritual to, in, for Demeter and harvest or planting time, and everybody in Greek society did this. And people, it, you had, it was secret. It was called the Mysteries, the Eleusinian Mysteries. And you weren't supposed to talk about it, but there's a few accounts around, and people talked about visiting the underworld, making contact with the dead. And um, Carl Ruck, who's a classicist at BU, says that was a um, that was a psychedelic potion. We don't know what they were using, whether it was mushrooms or something else. So the Greeks were into it, and there's also a lot of evidence that various psychedelic mushrooms were used in shamanism by some ancient American cultures. And here's a quote from an academic review paper written by Carrot Artel. Quote, The consumption of hallucinogenic mushrooms in ritual ceremonies was widespread among Mesoamerican cultures. Religious practices with sacred mushrooms extended from the Valley of Mexico to the rest of Central America, and they are thought to be at least 3,500 years old. The Maya consumed psilocybe cubensis, containing psilocybin, known to the Aztec as Tiunanactal. These mushrooms were also consumed by the Hustec, Totonac, Maztec, and Mixtec peoples, end quote. So here's the key point. It seems that the ancient world was steeped in psychedelic potions. 
And these might have led to the formation of certain worldviews around the globe, Dave. Yeah, that's interesting. It's easy to see how these psychedelic mystical experiences, this dissolution of the self, this fusing with the divine light, um, certainly might have led to the religious focus on mystical experience in, in that Eastern the Eastern religions like Buddhism and the practices of yoga and so on. But, but what about the claims that um, the, all these, ex- basically all the examples of revelation could be derived from or mediated by the use of psychedelics like Strassman talks about with DMT, the spirit molecule or DMT, you know, the soul of prophecy or some of the shamanic experiences. How do we, how do we, how can we understand that? Well, yeah, here's where things get even more interesting, I think, because in some cases, and particularly, as you say, when people are taking DMT, which is a key component in ayahuasca, which was heavily used by the Mesoamerican people, folks experience breaking through into another realm, another reality, and interacting with various entities. And it turns out that in some cases, these entities give people messages. They confer knowledge that seems to massively impact these people's worldviews. I think I have a clip here of Joe Rogan's DMT experience and his experience with these DMT entities. And this is in a conversation with uh, Michael Pollan. All right, let's hear it. The pure version is like a very short, much more intense ayahuasca experience. I've never done ayahuasca. I've only done mm-hmm. the D- DMT version. So just just uh, for our listeners here, remember that ayahuasca is this potion that's brewed uh, in the Amazonian basin. but DMT is a component of that, but you can also just extract the DMT and and uh, inhale it typically uh, with, without the rest of the ayahuasca potion. So he's talking about taking the DMT itself. Uh, the, By you, injection or? No, smoking it. Uh-huh. But when you what you get out of it is you're there while this is happening. Yeah, and you're just you're blown present. away. And you're like, I can't believe what I'm seeing. And that's true in ayahuasca too. You're and present. It, but there's all- just to be clear here, I, I, I want to highlight this, Dave. Mm-hmm. He says that you're present here, okay? So when for some people, when they take the DMT, they don't experience an ego dissolution. They don't lose the self. They are actually present in the experience. They remain themselves. Mm-hmm. So it's a, slight, yeah. Yeah, it's a slightly different experience than under some of the other hallucinogens. Mm-hmm. But there's all these entities that are trying to calm yeah. you down. Relax, relax, take it in, settle down, settle down. They're all trying to calm you down and, 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 and alleviate. Helpful. Yeah, it's, it's, it's weird. Yeah, so he says these entities are actually talking to him and trying to calm him down. I have another uh, little clip here, and this is a clip from a TEDx talk by author and lecturer Graham Hancock. And he's a very controversial figure, and of course, we're not endorsing him. Uh, he just happens to be talking about this in the public uh, domain, and he's somebody who's read and who's also listened to quite a lot. And of course, we're not endorsing Joe Rogan or any of these characters, right? We're just we're just using clips of them because they're the guys talking about it. But here's uh, Graham Hancock on this TED Talk. Another universal experience of ayahuasca is the encounter with 
seemingly intelligent entities which communicate with us telepathically. Now, I'm making no claim one way or another as to the reality status of these entities we encounter, simply that phenomenologically, in the ayahuasca experience, they are encountered by people all over the world. And most frequently of all, the uh, spirit of ayahuasca uh, herself, Mother, Mother Ayahuasca, uh, who is a, is a healer, and although she's kind of the mother goddess of the planet... She seems to take a direct personal interest in us as individuals uh, to heal our ills, to want us to be the best that we can possibly be, to correct errors and mistakes in our behavior that may be leading us down the wrong path. And so Graham Hancock, you know, goes and drinks the brew, this ayahuasca, and all of a sudden he has got this experience of this mother goddess healer, Mother Earth. Isn't that interesting, Dave? Yeah, when you hear the story of people talking about this ayahuasca thing, they talk about the plant teachers and they talk about how the plants teachers told them how to brew this thing up. <laughs> it's, yeah. It's and, uh it's definitely worth taking a note of. Yeah, and you 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 want to ask the question, well where did maybe goddess worship come from? Could it have been some of these people taking uh you know ayahuasca and experiencing this goddess uh, mother ayahuasca? Well, and you'll find that a lot of uh, the Gaia stuff is interconnected. The ecological stuff is interconnected, and in the, the way uh, with the psychedelic movement as well. There's, Dave, uh, there's a lot of interplay there. Yeah, write that down because uh, let's get into that in the next episode. We got to unpack yeah, that a little I- bit more. Good idea. Yeah. 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 I got some quotes here from Strassman because remember Strassman was the guy who actually did experiments with DMT. He would inject people intravenously with DMT. And these were uh, volunteer research participants. And when he did so, he, he recorded what they said. And so people would be just saying what they were experiencing. So it's really a, it's, it's a good resource. Basically, his whole book, his first book, has got many chapters describing these firsthand reports uh, and so let's go through a couple of these to give you an idea of what these entities are like. Here's one quote. Then there were three beings, three physical forms. There were rays coming out of their bodies and then back to their bodies. They were reptilian. Reptilian, Dave. <laughs> reptilian. It only took us five episodes to get to reptilians. This is awesome. I know. Now we're at reptilians. <laughs> we're going to get banned off every platform now. But yeah, that's right. We're not talking about Hillary Clinton here, guys. <laughs> anyway, I'll put a, I'll put an article in the show notes that explains that joke. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> they were reptilian and humanoid, trying to make me understand, not with words, but with gestures. They wanted me to look into their bodies. I saw in them and understood reproduction, what it's like before birth, the passage into the body. So notice there's communication happening here. They're making this particular participant understand, Mm. and the creatures are reptilian. Nice. Okay, I have another one here. Uh, This is another DMT session. Quote, They were trying to show me as much as possible. They were communicating in words. And just, by the way, sometimes people report that they're using gestures or telepathically. We heard Graham Hancock say telepathically, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, so they were communicating in words. They were like clowns or jokers or jesters or imps. There were just so many of them doing their funny little thing. I settled into it. I was incredibly still, and I felt like I was in an incredibly peaceful place. Then there was a message telling me that I had been given a gift. 
that this space was mine and I could go there anytime. I should feel blessed to have form to live. It went on forever. A connection had been made. The whole thing was really crucial to my spiritual development, end quote. Strassman talks about how he was actually very surprised about this because he expected that people would just fuse with the, you know, the divine light and everything. And all of a sudden, that's not happening. They are there. Their ego hasn't dissolved. They've got their personhood and they're interacting with these other entities and these entities are giving them messages. And these messages can have a transformative effect. And here's another quote by Graham Hancock about this. When I first encountered ayahuasca, I'd already been smoking cannabis for 16 years. And almost immediately, ayahuasca started giving me messages that this was no longer serving me, that it was leading me to behave in in negative and unhelpful ways towards others. And of course, I ignored those messages for years and years and went back to being stoned 16 hours a day. So by self-admission, it seems like Hancock was a stoner. And when I went down for my regular encounter with ayahuasca in October 2011, I was given the most unbelievable kicking by Mother Ayahuasca. Uh, And I was put through an ordeal. It was a kind of life review. Uh, And it's not an accident that ayahuasca is the vine of the dead. Uh, I was shown my death. uh, And I was shown that if I came to death, and what awaits us after death, without having corrected the mistakes that I was making in my life, uh, that it would be a very bad thing to meet for me. And, and, and actually, Mother Ayahuasca literally took me to hell. And that hell was a little like this hell painted by uh, Hier- Hieronymus Bosch, a, a truly terrible place, and, and a little like the place that the ancient Egyptians called the Judgment Hall of Osiris, where our souls are weighed in the scales in the presence of the gods against the feather of truth, of justice, of cosmic harmony. And I was shown that the path I was walking, my abuse of cannabis and the behavior associated with it, was going to lead me to be found wanting uh, in the judgment, and that I might face uh, annihilation in the world beyond death. So perhaps not surprising that when I came back to uh, England later in October 2011, I gave up cannabis And uh, I've never smoked it again since then. And actually, and again, I'm speaking only personally with no comment on others' use of cannabis. It's as though a monkey has been lifted off my back. Um, I'm liberated in incredible ways. Far from my creativity being inhibited, I I find myself writing much more productively, much more creatively, much more focused and and, and much more efficiently. Uh, as, as well, and I began to be able to address those negative aspects of my behavior which cannabis had revealed, and hopefully to make myself slowly, it's a long progress, into a more nurturing, more loving, more positive person. And this uh, whole transformation, it really has been a, a personal transformation for me, uh, was made possible by this encounter with death that Mother Ayahuasca gave me. <laughs> so Hancock was saved by Mother Ayahuasca, Dave. And, uh, yeah, and go ahead. Well, and and this is a uh, this is going to be one of the ways that uh, psychedelics are being sold today is because of their supposed um, curative powers. Yeah, you you right? can apparently experience these or some kinds of entities with other kinds of psychedelic drugs other than DMT, 
And there's an article that was published in The Guardian. It was titled, Welcome to the Trip of Your Life, The Rise of the Underground LSD Guides, or The Rise of Underground LSD Guides. And there you can read about various psychedelic guides. And by the way, this is illegal in the United States because it's illegal to use these substances, but these guys um, are basically getting people to use these drugs and then guiding them on these trips. But you can read about guides like Steve, who tells about, quote, the time he took psilocybin and a snake god entered his body and left him convulsing on the floor for an hour. The snake god was benevolent, he says, and the convulsing was, was cathartic. A tremendous discharge of anxious energy, he says, end quote. And notice that sounds like the kundalini snake that yogis believe enters you during yoga practice and helps you fuse with the divine, right? It's supposed to sort of like, I don't know, enter through your butt and then climb up your spine and its head sort of pokes up out your forehead, which is becomes a third eye, right? So we're back to these Eastern religious views again, but here this is not... Yeah, exactly. This is reptilians again. This is not DMT. This is a psilocybin. Uh, so it's a different drug, again, but an entity, and it's got these clearly yogic-type characteristic. So yeah, this guy Steve in the Guardian article takes the drug. He experiences a snake going up into him, and then he becomes an underground DMT guide in the U.S., where it's illegal to do that. So these things can lead to these transformative experiences. Yeah, it's interesting because Michael Pollan in that uh, Rogan interview talks about the fact that he did all the research. He went to the studies. He went to the places where they're using these in in a in a authorized manner. But he was not qual. He, he didn't meet the criteria to be in a study. Right? He wasn't dying of cancer or any of these kinds of things. Uh, and so he had to resort to these underground guides and and vet people so that he could have the experiences that he wanted to have in order to help write his book. Yeah, because so. doing this uh, or taking an experiential approach is is part of his. Uh, that's his approach, right? Yeah, that's his that's, MO. So, that, that's yeah. his MO. That's right. And then, of course, he talks about how he met some very sketchy people working as these underground guides. Yeah. Uh, they will link the Guardian article, anyways. It's Guardian, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, all right. So, in terms of uh, these entities, and I, I hope you got a clip for some machine elves in there because I'm, I'm, I'm eagerly awaiting those things. But uh, how do we, how do we think about these entities? Um, you know, the people are experiencing these uh, entities from another realm, and what are we to make of these things? Right. What do you think, Dan? Well, so the most obvious explanation, and the one that I think most people in neuroscience would hold. We could call the materialist explanation. And this view suggests that all there really exists is the biological brain, so that's the material brain. And so consciousness ex- and the conscious experiences are just the result of biological brain activity. And so on this view, you take the drug and it simply alters brain chemistry, and this causes changes in consciousness, which we would call hallucinations. It is, I think, pretty well known right now that many psychedelic drugs, especially, you know, DMT and LSD, have a physical structure, a molecular structure that is similar to the brain neurotransmitter, a special chemical in the brain called serotonin. Actually, you have this chemical in your gut as well. It's mostly present in your gut. And so it seems to be the case that the drug can therefore mimic the influence of serotonin in the brain, and that's how it can exert its effects and create these hallucinations. I think it's important here that this view would suggest that the entities that people experience are not real. 
They are just a figment of people's imaginations that have been triggered by this chemical. Yeah, and the nice the, the thing that fits nicely for the materialist here is that then uh, with the psychedelics, the materialist has a nice explanation for the origin of religion, right? He can yeah. explain it in a simply materialistic kind of brain chemical um, kind of a, a way. This is how he came up with this stuff. That's right. Now, he uh, the materialist has trouble understanding why this would work like this in the first place, right? Yeah. Uh, but they would say, well, maybe it helps, you know, make society, and so it was selected for evolutionarily and so on. They can make all sorts of stories there. Well, the, sto- the stories go even further back. They say, oh, the monkeys started using these things, and then they got smarter because they used these things, and it, their yes. brains got bigger, and, you know. That's right. A, it's just the storytelling just goes on, right? Yeah. I have a clip here from Joe Rogan. Considering the materialist explanation as well as some other explanation, here he is. Doing DMT, uh, I've 100% communicated with something. The question is whether that something was actually in my imagination or in my mind, or that something was something that takes place in another dimension. I don't know. I can't be sure. Right, so another possibility that he raises here, and I think this is the really intriguing one, is that DMT actually allows one to make contact with another realm. Or another dimension. Yeah. It's interesting because if you, when Rogan goes on from there, if I remember correctly, what he basically says is that um, he struggles with it, but but the problem he has is because the 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 mode of the experience was he's on his couch and he initiates the experience by ingesting this substance or smoking the substance, mm-hmm. and he has this experience. But he says, if I woke up in the middle of the night and I had this experience, I'd be totally convinced this was an alien abduction. Right. Yeah, so just the so mode of it's the, the mode context. that he the, the the that he initiated this on his couch right. um, is the thing that makes him think lean more towards the that's in his head, but he has to con- confess that the reality was so real that he could it could totally it's the exact same thing as a as an alien abduction. Yeah, and people come to the conclusion that they might be contacting another reality. Because these entities seem so real, the whole experience sometimes, to some people, feels more real than regular reality. And here's a clip from uh, Strassman again talking about this. I I think the thing that was the easiest for people to do is just take it at face value. Um, That DMT thrust them into some other place. And when they were there, they were there. And when they weren't, then they weren't. You know, um, one particular volunteer really, I think, put it nicely. he was of the opinion that where he went to on DMT was just going on, <clears throat> you know, kind of on its own. Um, that it was not as if when he did DMT in the study that he took up uh, kind of at the point that he had left off. It was more that he entered that realm sometime down the road from the time that he had last entered it. You know, so it was ongoing, and he dipped into it here and there. It wasn't like it was a product of his mind as much as a technology that he could use to enter that that world, those those worlds that uh, was going on independent of him. You know, um, so he'd be there one time, then he'd be there uh, the following time, and time would have elapsed in that realm just as much as it happened in this world. Um, so, you know... As much as I tried to to interpret what people were experiencing as non-real, just the reality of it, the 
the searing sense of you know solidity and and uh, just the tr- truth of what they were experiencing, you know, that made them really not want to swerve from uh, attributing uh, autonomous, independent existence to those things. So Strassman begins with the notion that these things might not be real, but then the data that was coming in, these descriptions and the convictions from his participants seem to suggest that they actually were contacting some other reality. And so here is Strassman articulating this sort of other explanation, something other than this materialist explanation that we mentioned before. As objective things, we might understand the beings as residing in alternative levels of reality, such as dark matter or parallel universes. Modified consciousness resulting from elevated brain levels of DMT, endogenous in non-drug spiritual experience or exogenous in other settings, allow someone to peer directly into those realms and thus view their contents, including their inhabitants, the beings. Yeah, so Strassman is saying that it's possible that the administration of DNT tunes the biological brain system such that it's able to receive a transmission from another dimension. So in other words, the person can mentally enter in, in consciousness into another dimension. And there are others who, who hold the same view. So here's uh, Graham Hancock with a particular kind of analogy. Our materialist science reduces everything to matter. Materialist science in the West says that we are just meat. We're just our bodies. So when the brain is dead, that's the end of consciousness. There is no life after death. There is no soul. We just rot and are, and are gone. But actually, many honest scientists should admit that consciousness is the greatest mystery of science. And, and that we don't know exactly how it works. The brain's involved in it in some way, but we're not sure how. could be that the brain generates consciousness the way a generator makes electricity. If you hold to that paradigm, then, then of course you can't believe in life after death. When the generator's broken, consciousness is gone. But it's equally possible that the relationship, and nothing in neuroscience rules it out, that the relationship is more like the relationship of the TV signal to the TV set. And in that case, when the TV set is broken, of course the TV signal continues. Now, interestingly, others, including Albert Hoffman, the creator of LSD, also articulated a similar kind of metaphor. And the basic analogy is that of a TV receiver, our brain, and maybe consciousness is like the screen. And then you have a transmitting signal, which the brain picks up. And the idea is maybe that that transmitting signal is coming from perhaps another dimension or maybe based on some religious perspectives from this quote-unquote spiritual realm, right, which could be considered as another dimension. Dave, what do you think about all this uh, sort of stuff? Well, you know, going back to your various explanations about the, the materialist explanation and this possibility of, 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 of actual some kind of reality being there, one of the things that um, I'm a little bit— uh, at least I want to make a point about is that I think many Christians might be tempted to just simply subscribe to this materialist explanation. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we've had we've had uh, um, a lot of throughout modernity uh, and materialism, a lot of demythologizing of the Bible, and a lot of Christians might simply have been so trained to think of this and just apply Occam's razor instead of actually analyzing it based on the worldview that's presented in the Bible. Right, and and. Um, you know, I think that uh, 
many Christians, they believe in God, right? That's, that's Christianity, but then what? So, okay, so there's God, there's, there's Jesus Christ risen and ascended, there's the Holy Spirit, so you get the Trinity, um, and that, that's, that's just part of Christian belief. If you don't believe that, you can't call yourself a Christian, but then mm-hmm. what else? Well, you press people, and... and um, there's a devil. There's a devil. Okay, so there's a devil, there's yep. some demons, maybe a few angels, because they pop up here and there in the Bible, right? But but even there, even with the devil, it's amazing how many Christians don't believe, or at least don't have in their day-to-day headspace or worldview from which they operate the concept of a personal devil, as in, as in an entity, not just some sort of abstract evil, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, 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 and then the existence of what the Bible calls these unclean spirits, Right. right now, think about this. Uh, do you remember that movie, the '90s movie, The Stargate? Yes, yes. Yeah, and I, I remember. Exactly. I remember being terribly disappointed after seeing that movie. Right, Why and is I was disappointed. I was disappointed by its scope, ah. um, or, or I should say, lack of scope, because okay. it was it was hyped as one of these things of uh, you know this was going to be another grand universe like Star Wars with galactic systems and worlds and aliens and races. You know the term Stargate. I know, and, and you're I, always I, I, interested I, in that stuff. Yeah, I just it just <laughs> I, I, I used to be much more so than now, but yeah. but uh, this this it was just this uh, this just pr- promised this whole scope, right? And as it turned out, it was it was kind of wimpy it was just this one bad guy with this one pyramid ship and he was beat up you know he was beat back by a, a group of american special forces and i, I may be completely mischaracterizing this movie one bad I, don't, guy. I don't remember maybe you're a fan and they developed this a little bit later in the uh in the show it got it got bigger but but um i just remember this this disappointment in the scope and i think for many christians today that's their christianity it's really limited in scope uh, whereas the Bible, uh, it has a much larger reality in it. I mean, think about even in our in our own worship or liturgy, we talk about worshiping with the angels and archangels in all the company of heaven, right? Mm-hmm. Or or we sing about the the Lord God of Sabaoth, and that's just the Hebrew word for heavenly hosts. Yeah, I bet you most people think they're just he's saying that we're singing Sabbath. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you don't even probably, know they're right? saying heavenly but, hosts. But these are these are the these are the heavenly hosts, right? So we're talking huge. And, and, or, or think about even Psalm uh, 82, verse 1. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment, right? And that's that, that whole divine, divine council worldview, which we'll have to get into, that, that Mike Heiser in his Unseen Realm uh, really, really opens up and elucidates and recovers for us, mm-hmm. those of us who have been demythologized by modernity, right? Or, or think about even, even uh, Revelation. With the, I've been studying apoc- that a lot recently. Yeah, it's, it's an apocalyptic dragon. writing, and so you yeah. got, it's figurative, and so you got to be careful. But you got the dragon, and you get this whole host of strange demonic creatures, and right? And beasts. You got the first beast, <laughs> the second beast, and all this kind of stuff, and lots of angels. Yeah. Exactly, right? And so, so people reject the Bible because it lacks scope or grand and instead they pine after these fictional, uh, richly populated universes like Star Wars or Star Trek or the Marvel Cinematic Universe or what have you. Uh, but, but the point I want to make is here is that, that Christians ought not to quickly dismiss these experiences as simply psychological artifacts. Yeah. Okay, but, but to look at them and look at their content and look at the messaging that is coming from this content and from these entities, especially when they themselves, the entities, make claims about who they are. And we had one of those, and I'll give another another good example in a minute. Uh, yeah. and, and and then look at the effect of these experiences and the messaging that it has on the recipient. Yes, absolutely. Okay? 
And you're going to notice that, first of all, much of this messaging is deeply anti-Christian. And when you listen to these psychedelic guys, they they, they constantly have anti-Christian messaging. Um, they yeah, they always bash- talk about how, how Christianity was actually holding things back. And and uh, actually, Albert Hoffman talks about this. Uh, a number of these guys uh, talk about this. Uh, McKenna and others, uh, they're always talking about how Christianity is holding back all these benefits of the psychedelic experiences. That's right. And so they overly bash, over, overtly bash Christian beliefs, and they also promote a worldview that is deeply opposed to the Bible's worldview, right? And, yeah. And, and so when you think about this, the one thing, uh, even just as we're getting on near the end of the show here, is to take into account that, first of all, the Bible's worldview has a place and a space for the existence of this other world, of these otherworldly non-physical entities. Okay? Yes. Um, and... God has given prohibitions against contacting them. So, Dave, what you're saying is that it could very well be that that these people taking these drugs like DMT are actually making contact with entities in the spiritual realm. But this is, in the, from the Christian perspective, a forbidden type of a contact. It's a non-sanctioned contact. Yeah, that's the way I would take a, take interpret these experiences. And look, uh, in Deuteronomy, in chapter eighteen, beginning of verse nine, you get this. And this is this is the Deuteronomies in the first five books of the Bible. It's the Jewish Pentateuch, right? So this mm-hmm. is foundational for the we could call it the Judeo Christian worldview on this stuff. And this is what we read. Look, when you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations. They shall not be found among you. Anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering, anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or one who inquires of the dead. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord, and because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. For these nations which you are about to dispossess listen to fortune tellers and diviners, but as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do this. Yeah, so it's it's very clearly treating those things like the, the, the sorcerers, the charmers, and so on as actually doing something maybe real and bad. That's right. And, and, and notice that the, the actual, you got these contact things, but then you've got anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering, right? Uh, child sacrifice very much is connected uh, in these ancient practices to these other things. The, the uh, um, interprets omens, charmer, medium, necromancy, inquiring of the dead. And notice the sorcerer there, right? Mm-hmm. Um, now, when we think of sorcerer, you typically, you know, what comes up in your mind, right? It's, it's typically stuff like, uh, you know, guys with pointy hats with yeah, or, or, and energy <laughs> orbs and fireballs coming from staves and, you know, the video games or the, the, the Hollywood effects. But but it's interesting because the and I, I looked this up in the uh, the Greek translation, the Septuagint, because I wanted to sort of map it into the New Testament. But the the word behind sorcerer is pharmakos or, or in the New Testament, the same word pharmakia. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and and again, in the New Testament, it comes with prohibitions. And when you look at the semantic domain of that word, it's it's the use of magic, often involving drugs and casting of spells upon people. Wow. Okay? It, it, the, the focus is upon the use of certain potions or drugs and the casting of spells. And then always commentators talk about it's the abuse of drugs. 
right? But it, that's, that's kind of a, again, that's kind of a modern way of thinking all oh, the abuse of drugs, because because what you have here is you have people seeking knowledge. Mm-hmm. And it was interesting. I, I took, I looked at the uh, Septuagint. That's the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and I looked at a, an English translation of that. And it was and one who augurs with sor- sorcery. <laughs> wow! I didn't even know what augur means. I had to look it up. So, so that's that's to to divine or interpret a good or bad outcome. So it's basically seeking knowledge using drugs or potions. Well, this is exactly what these guys are doing. Well, this is right, and, and, and I haven't found anyone to the, who's actually made this connection. And I got to do a little bit more deeper digging. But I think part of the thing that's happened here, you look at the definitions between all those different distinctions that are there in Deuteronomy eighteen, right? And there, there, there's it just points to distinctions between various disciplines of occult craft. But most of those are lost on us today because the definitions typically will overlap and will sound very similar. And I think that's because the, the, this Judeo-Christian worldview has managed to a certain extent to, to push this stuff away, to push it into the margins, to push it out of Western uh, culture. And so we, we've lost the distinction. But I think there's a connection that the sorcery, there's this pharmakia, this connection. I mean, we have the word pharmacy, right? Pharmaceuticals. Yes. Um, in, in the modern English, there's a, I think there's a connection between what these, especially if you look at what guys like McKenna and and Strassman, these guys, and and they talk about all these cultures using these drugs for enlightenment. Well, it makes total sense that that's what it is. That's what's being banned here, right? And notice the connection between that and and uh, abhorrent practices like child sacrifice. Yeah, this is really interesting, Dave. Uh I wonder, do you have some examples of how these potentially demonic psychedelic visions have inspired modern literature or art? I know you've got some uh, interests in how this might have played out in the context of comic books. So um, this is uh, this is from a book called Mutants and Mystics, uh, Science Fiction, Superhero Comics, and the Paranormal by Jeffrey S. Kripal, I think that's how you pronounce his last name, and he's the J. Newton Razor Professor of Philosophy and Religious Thought at Rice University. So this is this is not a this is not a just some you know kind of a comic loving stoner writing about stuff. He's he's written other books like The Serpent's Gift, Gnostic Reflections on the Study of Religion. Notice the Serpent's Gift. I know right? the Serpent again. <laughs> and the Serpent again and again with the reptilians, right? So so he, this is this is very interesting because. Um, he he what he does in this book is he kind of connects his own psychedelic experiences to the biographies of many of these writers that wrote some of these uh classic now classic what are considered classic comics and the 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 their the influences on them that led to the scripts that they wrote and the kind of stuff that they were into most of their life and so he starts out talking about uh Alan Moore who is uh he was uh, author of The Watchmen and another one, uh, Promethea. These are really well known and by um, comic book fans. And mm-hmm. um, this is what he this is what he said. So so Moore speaks openly about his use of psychedelics, especially magic mushrooms, and describes a number of scenes in conjunction with the 1994 occult opening, including spending part of an evening talking to an entity who claimed to be a goetic demon, first mentioned in the Apocrypha. And Moore would later weave goetic demons into Promethea. Okay, so and this is a, this is a this is the they he shows the cover of this comic. I've never read this thing. Uh, it's Promethea as she explores sex, stars, and serpents. 
right? So what and you're saying uh, is, what you're saying is, is that the the author of this comic took psychedelics and was inspired by a demon he contacted through the psychedelics. Yeah, that's right. Basically, and this whole uh, um, this comic is all about tantric sex and and that kind of stuff, right? So these guys are very much into all that kind of stuff, and and he struggles. The the quote kind of continues, and and. Uh, I think this is very relevant to what we were just talking about. So he was he struggled over whether the demon was purely internal, that is, a projection of his psyche, or whether it was external and more or less what it claimed to be. Um, in the fantastic paradoxical pattern that will structure all that follows, Moore confesses that the most satisfying answer that it was both. Quote, oh. it doesn't, yeah, so quote, that doesn't make any logical sense, but that satisfied me most emotionally. It feels truest. Uh, it seems like he's again being guided by the feeling, but he's got that same dilemma that Rogan had. Not sure if it was a figment of my imagination or an actual real contact, but he's kind of weighing it up. And in this case, he's saying both. That's interesting. Yeah, that's right. Um, and and again, the, these guys are writing, and so they're writing. He talks about this whole business of. Uh, he says these are Gnostic experiences. Either you've had them or you haven't. And by Gnostic, um, more means a particular kind of direct and immediate experiential knowledge of one's own divinity that cannot be reduced to reason or faith and stands very much opposed to the consensus reality of society and religion. It's very much very close to that Eastern philosophy of, of fusing with the divine and therefore being divine yourself and so on. That's right. And then he throws in this like this jab here. He says, uh, he says, faith is for sissies who daren't go and look for themselves. That's my basic position. Magic is based upon gnosis, direct knowledge. Um, and so, you know, we've got it captures. Uh, we're going to have to get into this, this the, the influences that come into the messaging that come into the uh, the stories and the, the shows and all that movies and everything. But but just just. From this topic, he's encountered this goetic demon that then later influences his writing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, 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 and one of the things that's interesting is that he's there in that offhanded comment saying, you know, you people who would have faith by reading and hearing, that's not as good as me who's had a direct experience through the exactly. psychedelic drug. That theme exactly. is going to come up again later. I've got one more one more example here, if you'll permit me to talk about it. And, and this is another author. This is Grant Morrison. And this is a guy who, um, his most uh, celebrated comic book is Invisibles, but he's also penned uh, uh, All-Star Superman, Batman, Justice League of America, Doom Patrol, the new X-Men. So anyways, he's very influential in in uh, in in comic book uh, lore. And so he has this contact experiences in this Kathmandu hotel overlooking a Buddhist temple in the same year, 1994. And it forms this, it forms, uh, Kripal notes, it forms the paranormal template for this comic, The Invisibles. Okay. Mm -hmm. And he talks about, so in this, in this experience, the writer was visited by shiny silver antibodies from the fifth dimension an experience, an experience he describes as being electrocuted by God. Okay. So he makes so, a contact with or has this experience under psychedelics and then he writes it into the comic books. And Dave, all the kids are reading the comic books. That's right. Now this is uh yeah, the invisibles maybe, yeah. I mean Promethea, you definitely wouldn't want your kids reading that because it's okay. it's pretty X-rated, but uh but at least from what I've gathered from this book. But Dave, but, Dave, uh, Dave, you know, when my daughter sometimes, my six year old, 
even when she sees in some cartoons the various kinds of weird creatures and so on, she identifies and she'll turn to me and she'll mm-hmm. say the following. That's demonic. <laughs> you know? And nice. I'm sure That's she'd good. be saying that when she, if she was listening to this right now. Yeah, definitely. Um, <laughs> you know, it's interesting because because uh, later on, Kripal notes, like, when these guys write, he says, there are no throwaway lines. The writer expects his readers to to go and research the historical and philosophical background of such, quote-unquote, fictional allusions, right? These guys are not doing this by accident. Um, and, and then, uh, just a little bit later, he says this, look, so The Invisibles was not just about a tantric contact experience in Nepal, though throughout those six years of writing and living, the comic was the diary. It was about Morrison's love of the Beatles in the 1960s. It was about his psychedelic trips on LSD, magic mushrooms, ecstasy, and DMT in the 1990s. It was about his reading of H.P. Lovecraft and all those space monsters. And a near-death vision of Jesus. In December 1995, Morrison lay dying of an advanced, undiagnosed staph infection that had collapsed a lung. Uh, uh, quote, Gnostic Jesus, a kind of slightly savage bearded firebrand, appeared to him in a giant column of light and said this, I am not the God of your fathers. I am the hidden stone that breaks all hearts. And so the writer puts that line into the invisibles. And, and so this fiery Jesus apparently then told Morrison a number of be- beautiful things that uh, how the world's worked and, and none of the stuff he can remember. But he told him something that he did remember, and that is this, now, that he didn't have to die, that he could return if he was willing to work for us and spread the light. Oh, so there's an okay. evangelistic component here. Dave, yeah, what and, you're saying is that these guys have had these experiences with these demonic entities through their psychedelic trips, have written it into these various comic books, and are essentially that way preparing the young generations uh, to adopt this different worldview, this what uh, turns out to be a completely pagan, non-Christian worldview. Yeah, absolutely. This is propaganda and fully in action. And in a future episode, we can line up a whole list of examples of how this is going on through just about any show on Netflix, right? Hey, Dave. Uh, Dave. But one more thing. Listen yep. to this. So the, so the greatest lunacy is to believe in a creator. By doing so, we deny our own divinity. Broken, broken to the yoke of religion, we forget who made our burden and set it upon us. So this is the kind of Gnostic, anti-Christian stuff that these guys then evangelistically put in their stuff. Yeah, they're setting themselves up as God. Dave, this is was an amazing analysis. i got to give you one of these. Great point, Uncle Dave. Well, I'll give you one of these too, <laughs> man. You're awesome, Uncle Dave. That was a great Thank analysis. <laughs> well, you know, this, the points that you raised here sort of already— answer Joe Rogan's question when he says the following. Why can't you experience that interdimensional being and learn something from it? Right? So I think you've already Mm -hmm. answered that, because what you're doing is you're learning uh, stuff you're not supposed to learn, because you might be contacting uh, this forbidden dimension. And this is part of a clip that I want to play next, where Joe Rogan is interviewing the famous or infamous, depending on your perspective, Alex Jones. So they're also talking about these sorts of things. And here is uh, part of that conversation. And be a better person when you come out of it. Because for whatever reason, 
at first it's all beautiful, and soon you're in Aztec base, catnipping all the local tribes and, and killing whoever's the tallest or the smartest. Every time it gets control, it starts murdering everybody. And it always starts beautiful. It always starts great. So you're talking about ancient civilizations where they ritualize psychedelic drugs and they wind up killing everybody? Like- in every case. In every case, the priest say, we have to throw babies into fires. We have to cut their hearts out. Hmm. So Alex Jones, that was his raspy voice there. <laughs> what he's saying uh, is basically that it might all start nice, you know, mother, goddess, earth kind of stuff. But then next thing you know, there's child sacrifice and is demanding all this evil stuff from you. And I got to tell you, when I first uh, heard Alex Jones saying this stuff, I thought he was just being ridiculous. And so, so what I did was I just did a little bit of research. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's, uh, uh, some interesting things I found here. First of all, before I get there though, here's more Alex Jones. People that the ones that were actually working to build the temple, once they but died, let me tell they you, killed everybody. I've been down Just there with like real, real university heads who I, I want to hear from them. These are the Mayans. And they said, yeah, no, we're opening an interdimensional gate. The gods want blood. And they didn't take it internally to the mouth. They would take enemas of dozens of hallucinogens and alcohol. And so the priest would take a couple of drugs, and then the priest wanted to communicate with the aliens, and the aliens wanted blood. And they also So took- it was more like, we're chopping hearts out. Yes, sir. Okay, we did a thousand. Okay, the gate's open. Okay, this is it. This is our episode title, Dan. What's that? Psychedelic Enema. Okay, Psychedelic <laughs> Enema. Uh, I guess for our younger, younger audiences... Uh, who might not know, the term enema refers to the introduction of a substance into the rectum, so up the butt uh, from the outside. And that's because uh, the actual the lining of the rectum is, is very thin and is very absorbent. So you can actually, uh, t- and, uh, they, they can absorb a drug a lot faster if you just put it, uh, you know, I, I want to say this delicately, but, you know, you're just basically putting it up your butt. In, and that's what they the were doing. Regions. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, yeah. And so the That's claim it. is the claim is that these ancient Mesoamerican people were injecting hallucinogens up their butts, and then they were given some sort of visions from these drugs, and that led them to conduct various sacrifices. And of course, we know that the, those people in Mesoamerica were kind of famous almost for the kinds of sacrifices that they engaged in. And I thought this was kind of really bizarre, so I went looking and researching this, And I didn't have to look very far because a quick literature search returned an article titled Hallucinogenic Drugs in Pre-Columbian Mesoamerican Cultures, and it's published in Neurologia, which is the official journal of the Spanish Neurology Society, okay? Mm -hmm. And remember, the Spanish were involved in colonizing parts of uh, Central and uh, South America. But I looked through this, and... Here's some very interesting quotes that actually support, surprisingly, what Alex Jones had to say. Quote, Some substances were used to provide visions and to decrease pain inflicted by self-sacrifice, a typical practice in Mayan culture. For example, nab, a white lotus or water lily found in the lakes and rivers of Guatemala, was smoked or eaten raw for the psychoactive properties of its bulbs and roots. Nab makes frequent appearances in Maya iconography and it is usually associated with death, the underworld gods, and the afterlife. Mayan priests practice divining 
and entered ecstatic states to communicate with the gods and forces of nature. And then a, a, a few sentences down, the Maya used enemas to administer certain substances in order to attain more intense trance states more quickly. Researchers have discovered Mayan classic period sculpture and ceramics depicting scenes in which hallucinogenic enemas were used in rituals. Some figures are shown vomiting while others receiving enemas. There are also anthropomorphic terracotta figures demonstrating the self-administration of psychoactive enemas. So they do it to themselves too. Quote, the iconography on many ceramic vessels from the Mayan late classic period shows some figures chatting as they receive enemas and pots overflowing with foam from a fermented drink. And I see they, they show this figure here uh, of a mural, and sure enough, there's this guy sort of laying on his side with, with his one leg up, and another guy applying this large turkey baster <laughs> to, to the, guy, the guy who's laying down his, to, to this guy's butt. And, uh, and then, like, above him, there are these weird, like, winged dragon creatures or something flying... You know, that's probably depicting his actual vision, right? So this is for real. They were actually doing this kind of stuff, right? And, 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 and listen to what it says. The Dresden and Madrid codices, this is a few pages uh, later, the Dresden mm-hmm. and Madrid codices show mushrooms in Mayan scenes of human sacrifice. Uh, interesting. So it does, in fact, seem to be the case that this type of practice was, or the, the, the use of psychedelics was associated with the sacrifices and all these bizarre demonic practices that those uh, people were engaged in. Pharmakia. Uh, that's right. You. Now, Dave, I just have a couple yeah. more quotes here, and then uh, we apologize to our listeners for, for dragging this episode on, but we, ha- we have to get uh, through to this important information. Here, here are just a few quotes from Strassman's participants. Listen to the demonic aspect of of these experiences, Dave. Quote, Mm -hmm. When I was first going under, there were these insect creatures all around me. They were clearly trying to break through. I was fighting letting go of who I am or was. The more I fought, the more demonic they became. Probing into my psyche and being, I finally started letting go of parts of myself as I could no longer keep so much of me together. As I did, I still clung to the idea that all was God and that God was love, and I was giving myself up to God and God's love because I was certain I was dying. As I accepted my death and dissolution into God's love, okay, the mm-hmm. insectoids began to feed on my heart, devouring the feelings of love and surrender. Nice. That's demonic, <laughs> right? <laughs> That's right, yeah. And here's another quote. Yeah. Quote, it's more like being possessed. I mean, the guy just directly said this, uh, this participant. Yeah. It's more like being possessed. During the experience... So this is another Strassman subject. This then. is another Strassman yeah. subject. During the experience, there's a sense of someone or something else taking control, right? So it's not just that you're losing control to some experience. There is another entity that's taking control. Quote, it's like you have to defend yourself against them, whoever they are, but, they're, but they certainly are there. I'm aware of them, and they're aware of me. It's like they have an agenda. It's like walking into a different neighborhood. You're really not quite sure what the culture is. It's got such a distinct flavor. The reptilian being or beings that are present. So the reptilians are back again. <laughs> yep. 
Oh, Dave. So on that note, then, I guess what we're saying here, if we were to just close this off, is that it's completely conceivable that they are these demonic entities or fallen angels, if you will, that can influence people through these psychedelic experiences. Would you agree with that, Dave? Yeah, definitely. And, you know, you can rail about uh, all the, you know, the Bible forbids and forbids that. But the, the reality is it's there for our, that those prohibitions are there for our protection. And uh, you just, what you just, the two quotes you just read are perfect examples of that these entities do not have your best interest in mind. Yes. And if that's right? the case... And enough people are doing this sort of drug. And remember that we mentioned that now it's being pushed into the mainstream. Yeah. It's possible that it can start to take over the culture. And, and then you have groups of people essentially being guided or, in, in other words, possessed by these entities. Mm-hmm. And then the next thing you know, in comes the psychedelic enema. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Right? Or and the, chil- and children's the hearts are being ripped that, out. Right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that was just old tech. All right, Dave. Um, so now we got now we got IV. Now now look the we we don't have I think we're gonna have to get into this next episode is this whole aspect of evangelism because as I kind of joked uh, about the Paulin Rogan interview uh, or the Rogan interview of Michael Paulin, uh, these guys are extremely persuasive when they talk. Uh, it really it's a it's a real sales pitch about the pro, these benefits of these of these um, these psychedelics and what what great things they have to offer and there's a real danger here that for example your students uh, and much of this is being couched in in terms of it's, it's science based and and oh you know tech Silicon Valley is doing microdosing and it's got all these benefits and and all this kind of stuff but there there are some real dangers to to opening yourself up to these um, these experiences and the worldviews that come out of these experiences. Yeah, I totally agree, and and uh, maybe we'll get a little bit more uh, into shamanism, and I, I I can also talk more about this uh, current trend where these drugs are being used as these quote-unquote miracle cures Mm -hmm. of various mental disorders and uh, where all that's going. So we still got a lot to talk about, and let's save it for another episode. Okay, Dan, so let's just close with uh, reminding our listeners where they can find us. Uh, You can find us on the web at uh, www.notconformshow.com. Uh, you can also email us, and at the, on the website you'll find links to the episodes. You find uh, players that you can play to stream it off the web. You'll find detailed show notes about each of these episodes, and some from time to time I might add stuff to the show notes even after the fact. So uh, if you're as a, as a, just as a resource, if people come back to this later, uh, things that are interesting that are related to the show. If you want to give us some feedback or information or send us some articles or links, uh, you can contact us at info at notconformshow.com. Again, that's info at notconformshow.com. And uh, on the web, you'll also find our RSS feed for Simplecast. Um, but uh, you can just search Not Conformed on the various uh, players, uh, iTunes and whatnot. You should be able to find us there. If you're not finding us where you want to find us, let us know. And uh, we're slowly working our way to make sure that all these things are enabled. I know i got to still work a little bit on Google Play to make sure that works. Um, but uh, send us a note, info at notconformshow.com. And uh, Dan, uh, we're going to sign off and... Uh, Uh, Talk to you in the next episode. All right, Dave. Talk to you later.